0: Welcome, you guys. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 through 22. It's July 22nd. This is Milk. And just to let you know up on the board, uh, next week, Sunday, July 29th, heart in the parking lot. And uh, what that means is we do open water baptisms out here once a year. And we have people who don't come to campus ever who come and participate in that. So either way, you're welcome. Uh, We have uh, hot dogs that we roast and and stuff like that. Fellowship, it'll go from 12 noon to 2 p.m. There will be no meat next week. Uh, We have ended Revelation in meat, and we're going to enter into 2 Corinthians the following week. So uh, we're taking a little break, one day break on meat, but we're going to be having heart in the parking lot next week. And you're all welcome. Uh, No matter what, you're welcome to come and sit with us, eat, and enjoy the the fellowship. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh thank you for life, thank you for your word. Uh the word made flesh that dwelt among us, your son, your only human son who gave his life, uh sacrificed himself, shed his blood on our behalf. And we love you, God, and thank you for uh loving us so much. You gave us your only begotten son. We pray that we will know you and him in spirit and in truth as a result of studying your word together. Pray your spirit will be with us as we consider the contents of our verses today. And uh, pray you'll be with us now as we hear your words set to music, that it will find a place and reside in our hearts, come to our minds when necessary, and equip us to be better Christians, uh, known for our love of others. We pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: And we know that all things.
0: Work. Work to get- Yeah. to All right, we left off last week, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul said, "Now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world have come." And uh, we finished a hundred weeks of verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And like most uh, pastor teachers, I did not want to touch that book, man. I mean, when it started and the request came, because I knew it's so up in the air and it requires so much study to try to understand it, even on a cursory level. But I took up the challenge and have been abundantly blessed as a result of it. Uh, blessed with a new vigor for what the good news is about in Christianity today, blessed with a better worldview of the Bible and its purpose and application to believers today, blessed with a better understanding of the makeup of God and His only human Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and blessed with some real strong footing on some pretty sound eschatological, which means in-time positions. So reading this passage here in 1 Corinthians, where he says, You know, these things were written for our admonition and were written uh, as examples to us. Upon whom the ends of the world have come. That is a substantive eschatological end time position Paul makes there. For them then and there. The end of the age had come, which is what the book of Revelation is talking all about. So there's that. This brings us to uh, verse 12 here at 1 Corinthians 10. So let's pick it up there, 12 through 22. Wherefore, he says, let him that thinketh he stands take heed lest he falls. There is no temptation taken, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are, that, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Verse 19 What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot partake of the Lord's table or the table of de- and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So those words in the King James, especially those last four verses, are so hard to get when you first read them. And I have to take us back into the context of this epistle as we talk through it for you to get what he is talking about. And I think it will become clear when we're done. It is a heavier discussion uh, because of the context that has to be included, but I think we'll get through it. We've touched on a number of points in the text over the past few weeks. After justifying the fact that Paul could uh, he did not, but he could live off the donations that were given to the church. Paul ended chapter 9 by offering us a para a, a parallel to the Olympic Games. And he says that he runs his Christian race so he won't be cast off. That's one of the reasons that he runs. We open chapter 10 up with him illustrating how the children of Israel stumbled in their walk. And he gave us a number of reasons for this, which we covered last week. That parallels to everything he's been saying. So it appears, if, he want, if we wanted to make this argument, that all of these reasons orbit around idolatry. And I know this is getting kind of hefty, But listen to what he said were the reasons the children of Israel stumbled in their walk in the wilderness, and then he told the people of Corinth, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Remember, he said the children of Israel first lusted, then they committed idolatry, then they committed fornication, and then they tempted Christ, and they tempted God, and then they began to murmur. And we suggested that there's possibly a chronology in the way he listed that. That first they lusted after the former things of their uh, Egyptian life. We want the cucumber and the leeks. They looked backward to the life they once had. And then they idolized the golden calf. And then they committed fornication with other nations. And then they tempted God in doing all these things to destroy them. That was the tempting of God. And then they became night complainers of everything that God did on their behalf at night, complaining and complaining about their lot. So, of course, you could probably reverse that order. And the chronology is not the important part. You could reverse it and probably come up with the same type of of justification for it. It's not the chronology, but it's the fact that all of those things are present in the act of idolatry. Now, it's going to subtly play into the whole concept today. I say it in part because Paul returns to the topic again of idolatry in a minute. So, the principles of idolatry are the same today, but they have an application that is a little bit different in our day than it did in his day, and in the day of the children of Israel. Our eyes are drawn away today. We lust after the former things of our life. We didn't ever go to church on Sunday. We never read the scripture. We, we partied all night Saturday night and slept till four on Sunday. We, we might look back to the fun times of that and look backward and lust after those things. We might have found more solace in religion. We may have found ourselves in our freedom of relationship with God more satisfied by looking back at the the wonderful comfort we had in Mormonism or Catholicism or some other ism, you know, and we look back on it with fondness. Boy, I wish I was, you know, and, and we recognize and we start to idolize those things. We start to put those things in place ahead of God. And then we begin to commit fornication with those who were of those things. And that doesn't mean sexual fornication, it means we have interaction with those things again we begin to engage with them and then we are testing God to smack us back down he says to us he's liberated us in our Christian walk from all those things and yet we keep desiring to go back and and, and appreciate the comforts of the the, uh, camaraderie of a drunken night or the camaraderie of the cultural hall uh, potluck whatever it is we look backward and yearn for those days And then he allows us to get to the point where we begin to murmur against Christian things. And we begin to talk again. This is the application of Scripture to our lives. How it applied to Paul's day and worshiping idols in in the temple of Diana isn't really direct. And how it applied to the children of Israel's day isn't really direct. But these are the spiritual principles that apply to us now. It's pretty amazing in my estimation. Uh, so, And it's all reflected in the parables of Jesus, too, parable of the sower, etc. So, in the face of everything he has written, which we covered last week, Paul adds, Wherefore, to them, you guys in Corinth, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Remember, the concept was, what will keep you from stumbling on your walk? If you think that you're standing right, take heed of yourself before you fall. I love the phrase because when you think about it, if you get someone who thinks they're so strong in their walk, uh, they already have their foot on the banana peel of slipping because they are thinking that they're strong. So the idea is really, really good. It's in humility. We are not really capable. Uh, Sometimes people will say, do you think you could ever fall? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, daily, in fact. It's possible I slip. And if I keep going... And if you get an attitude of I'm standing, you know, so you're standing in pride. So he, th- that, that saying is really uh, philosophically beautiful. Take heed if you think you're standing. Be careful because you, you're about to fall. Springboarding off this idea, Paul now speaks to the concept of temptation. And he says something that's sort of out of the blue. And it's a verse that is, it used to plague me. And when I was LDS, it really used to torment my mind. It wasn't this verse, but it was the LDS interpretation of the concept. And still as Christians, I hear it bannered about. Let's read it. It's verse 13. He says, There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. All right, that one I get. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. I used to say, then why do I sin? That was my response. Then why do I sin? And then he says, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you are able to bear it? And I used to say, I'm not able to bear it. That's why I sin. It used to drive me nuts. This this passage is pregnant with meaning, and it's been interpreted by people a number of different ways. And in my view of it, I hear the improper application of it more than I hear a proper application of it. What most people suggest that Paul is saying is that God intervenes and prevents us from the act of sinning. That's not what it means in my estimation and from what I've been able to study. So again, when it comes to all action, which is a principle I stand on firmly, there is a two-way street going on here with God and us. Uh, Maybe I should do it this way. There's a two-way street here with God and us when it comes to our actions, our choices, our lives. There is this idea that God does this and then we do it. And that is not how Scripture seems to describe it. Uh, Let's break this verse down. The first thing we have to note about is what it says in the King James. There is no temptation taken you. There has no temptation taken taken you okay now what is being said there is there is no temptation on the face of this earth god has not allowed there to be a temptation on the face of this earth that can overwhelm you and remove your capacity to choose it does not exist so when people say i i couldn't help it that's not true you didn't want to help it you didn't even fight it you loved it fine but no temptation in a metaphysical sense has the ability to take, capture your body, mind, hands, mouth, feet, and cause you to go do something that is against your will. God will not allow a temptation to take you. The Weymouth translation, which I love, which is a literal Greek translation, says it this way. No temptation has you in its power but such is as common to human nature. So in other words, if you're tempted to steal, that's something that's common in human nature. There's something you want. You don't have it. You don't own it. You have a temptation to steal it. That temptation is common to the way human beings are made, especially in their fallen nature. But while those temptations live in our flesh and our ability to resonate to them if they came from the dark or from the devil or whatever, and while they're part of being human, they cannot overwhelm you and force you to steal. Okay? Now, mental illness and the, Plato's idea of mental illness in, in, in society and stuff, we're not talking all about that. We're just talking about regular old people who are tempted to do something wrong being completely overcome and possessed so that they lose their free will okay i remember wondering what what the heck's wrong with me all these other deacons around are like you know i love my priesthood and and i never want to do wrong and they didn't you know they're just so good and i'm like what is wrong with me i want to steal and break things and And do all these things. My my flesh wants to do them and none of them want to do it, you know? Reading from Paul has helped me to understand that really my nature is not off the mark. Maybe they were not really in harmony with what they were really about in their heart of hearts. Maybe they were more hateful than I was or something like that. They had the sin nature and because it's common to us doesn't mean it's common to each of us. I might have the desire to steal something, for instance, you may not, but you may have the desire to gossip or I don't. It's common to man generally is what he's saying. Why can't temptation take us captive and force us to sin? Paul tells us. No temptation has you in its power, but such is common to human nature. God is faithful and ready will not allow you to be tempted beyond whose strength your strength you can't be tempted beyond your strength so right there we see the two-way street coming into play you have a strength temptation god will allow up to the height of your strength he won't allow a temptation to rise more where it takes you captive God comes down and has set that rule in place. But you have a strength that's implied in this verse. And you decide if you are going to allow yourself to participate in the thing that tempts you. Now, perhaps if God was not faithful, as it says, in allowing this, perhaps we would be like bears and and cougars and dogs or whatever, and we just do what we feel constantly. Creations, animals, animals. but we're made in his image. And so he has in the human realm not permitted for temptation to actually take us or even just our natural carnal nature to overwhelm us. He gives us strength to meet the temptation, all right? It doesn't say he gives us more strength. It says that he, he gives us that we will not be tempted. If this is our strength level, he doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. But he will allow us to be tempted equal to what our strength will be. And then what happens is God says the temptation's now in your lap. Who do you love more? Yourself or the person that you're tempted to harm or me? What do you love more? That's what the whole thing is based on, right? So being made in his image, God tells at least the believers at Corinth that God is in fact faithful and will not allow them to be tempted beyond their strength. And now as a means to keep us from interpreting this wrongly or too extremely, what Paul says is God is faithful and he will always step in there. This does not mean, which is what I used to think it meant, he will give us more strength and therefore stop us from sinning. And that was always the misinterpretation of my mind. No, God will we'll not allow you to be tempted beyond uh, what you're capable of handling. And I'd say, I'm not capable of handling anything. And, and, and so he's not giving me very much strength. And so therefore I'm sinning. It's, it's, it's not that. It's that he is giving us an equal measure of his support so that uh, a temptation can't overwhelm our ability to choose. No temptation can overpower us or strip us of our free will. That's impossible. Listen, the implication is our strength does then come into play. That is how we will be judged. Because our, our strength does come into play. And it must be exercised in order to escape from the things that tempt us. When they aren't, we sin against love, and we then are fully accountable to God for the action taken. Forget the Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. God has not allowed that to be possible, right? So the fault lies not with the temptation having more power than ourselves. The fault does not lie with God not giving us enough strength to overcome it, uh, dark forces and stuff. Uh, the, The fault lies with each one of us and our decision to act. Can't escape that. And even though I think many people do through some misinterpretation. So that's the basis of this passage in my estimation. And the passage sends a clear message. We're responsible for the things we choose to do. And in addition to protecting Christians, so to speak, that we can't be tempted beyond our might, he adds another thing that God does for us in this passage. So he not only empowers us, he says, but when the temptation comes, God will also also provide a way to escape. So that you will so that you may be able to bear it. Again, that's not so that you will be able to bear it. It's so that you may be able to bear it. So on the one hand, if the temptation is powerful, God seems to mitigate the power of the temptation with his power. It can't overcome you. And then he provides a way of escape as well. That when I am in the throes of going into an adulterous affair and I'm moving toward that mark and there's a woman that I've been engaging with and I'm tempted, God comes back to me and he strengthens me, but I'm still drawn. And then at some point in that, it seems like he says, what are you doing? Look at that door right now. You can walk from this. That way of escape is provided to us. That moment of clarity that he gives and we say, not going to listen. I'm going to do it. Or we say, okay, I'm I'm going that way. And it's tough. It's tough for people. It's difficult. That's a foregone conclusion. So again, not that you will be able to escape it, that that you may, again, placing it squarely in our hands. Um, I think, I guess it's a way to say that every Christian kind of grossly put in a gambling sense has skin in the game. And that's kind of a paradox too, isn't it? That we have skin in the game relative to our relationship with God. Is that skin gonna rain or is his spirit gonna rain? We are all in it with him. And it is an, a relationship where he's working with us and we're working with him. And it is, it's just like a marriage. You're gonna be unified. You're gonna work to, toward that common goal or you're gonna be separate and divorce each other or at least one divorce the other. So the bottom line choice we're all making when tempted is do I love God? Uh, do I love my neighbor? Others more than myself and my desires. That's the rub. And it's a minute to minute choice for us sometimes. I've done enough sinning and embracing temptation in my life. It's really clear what's at play here, to me at least, that when we are younger, we do a lot of foolish things. We really do. But when we mature in the faith, especially, the temptations that take us, so to speak, seem to pretty much come down to our choosing. To do it because this is what we want. I want this. I want to take this donut that is not mine. I want to take this man's wife. I want to take this neighbor's husband. I want to take this opportunity to hurt somebody else. I want to take. I want. I want. And we make that decision. So to the Corinthians, it seems that Paul is speaking all about this stuff in reference to idolatry. That's what I have to keep bringing you back to, which again is, was a huge temptation for the people of Corinth. They were surrounded by these idols and the temple of Diana and, and, and sexual promiscuity tied to the temple. They were surrounded by meats offered up to that idol. They were constantly as Christians following Jesus who has disappeared now and has ascended into heaven promising to come back. They are wandering around wondering, you know, boy, that sure looks good, looking back over their shoulder. I guess it would be similar to, if we just wanted to make a parallel, it would be similar to uh, taking of selfies today, which is so normal. A selfie, I, you know, everyone does it. That's what we do. We are in a selfie generation. I even took one the other day. Ooh. So, yeah, it was like my fourth selfie. And and it's the beginning. It's it's how it starts. It's so normal. It's accepted. And so in Paul's day, idol worship was so normal, and the things involved with idol worship, that he's trying to keep them from it in every way possible. Now, earlier in our discussion of Corinthians, he said, look if you want to eat meat offered to idols, go ahead. But don't do it if it offends somebody else. Well, now he's coming back to this topic, and he seems to be saying... If eating that meat that was offered up to idols causes you to look back with fondness and get reintroduced to that, don't eat the meat. We're going to read about that in a second. So that's why he says at verse 14 now, he just gave us 13, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. He's bringing them back into the context of this discussion gather everything up we've said about the nation of Israel and their temptations in the wilderness and their failing. And then add that Paul has said all this stuff about avoiding falling into temptation. And it seems verse 14 sizes it all up for us. Gather up your strength. Examine the means that God has provided for you to overcome the temptation as a way of escape and flee idolatry. There's the content. Now, hang with me. We've talked at length about offering up meat to idols. And there seems to be that reference here, as I said. Perhaps the Corinthian believers were taking advantage of that liberty and somehow it brought them back into the bondage of idolatry. It's at this point, after telling them to flee idolatry, that Paul begins sort of a new topic that's related and it, but it's related in the Christian good way for their age. And it's tough to miss between verses, his, his direction in verse 14 and then what he says next. It's, if you don't it just suddenly seems like he says these things out of the blue. but he, is ta- he starts to talk about eating. And he begins it in verse 15 with, "I speak as to wise men, judge what I have to say." So there's this preface argument. You guys are wise, listen to my argument here. You've been tempted or you have returned to idolatry. You're gonna to begin to stumble, you're gonna do the things that the children of Israel did. You're all qualified to understand what I'm gonna talk about, judge the reasoning I'm about to provide, and what does he we get, begin with in his argument? A discussion of another kind of eating. He has talked about eating meat offered to idols, he now begins a discussion about another type of eating. All right, don't miss that. And so he says, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That's something that goes in the mouth. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This design of Paul appears to be that he is reminding them of the union of elements in the communion, the union of the communion uh, that unites believers then, okay? For a purpose at that time. Until Jesus comes is what he says later. We do this until Jesus comes because it's uniting them through the eating of communion and drinking of. Perhaps he's alluding to the fact that when they eat the meat offered to idols, that they are sharing in a communion with idolaters. You know that there is a communion when we sit down and eat together. That when you share a meal with another person, that is a very, very, if you give it any thought, intimate exchange. You're eating the same things You're enjoying the same conversation, the same spirit, and you're feeding yourself through an agreed-upon menu, so to speak. And so Paul is trying to say, you guys are being drawn back into idolatry, perhaps through the eating of meats, which you can do freely, but unless it stumbles someone or unless it's going to make you weak. But I want to introduce to you something that is given to us to unify us. And that's why he starts to talk about the cup of a communion of the blood of Christ and the bread which they break being the communion of the body of Christ. Remember last week that the first thing the children of Israel did was they lusted for what? It wasn't about lusting for sex. It was about lusting for the food, right? So and then we're talking about com- uh, meat offered to idols, food again, and now we're talking about Paul giving a solution to them in that day that will help keep them unified with one another and not with idolaters. There's a unifying power in eating, and we love doing it. That's why we go out to lunch. That's why we say, do you want to go to lunch? It's a, it's a wonderful type of, of uh, communion. Uh, these elements bind us, and they, let me tell you, uh, if you want to unite a people Make sure that you use food as one of the substrata things you implement in the binding of a people together. If you're looking to form a group, a unified group, include food, the foods you can eat, the foods you don't eat, the foods you love to eat, where you eat, when you eat, all of those things are really, really important to binding a group together. That's why we serve you bagels. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, Dress codes lead the way of unifying a group. I mean, when everyone's dressed the same, I mean, you're an army automatically. So dress codes are the first thing that uh, cults will begin to work on or people with cultural uh, ties. But food is another one. it's, It's really big. And for this reason, Jesus commanded his followers that whenever they got together to take the table and to eat of it together until he comes to unify themselves against all the plethora of other things going on in that world. So under this, the description of the new heaven and the new earth and the spiritual life in the new Jerusalem, stay with me on this quickly, uh, which is here and it's, which is there now, according to Revelation. We're in a different age now. Stay with me. The unifying purposes of communion aren't necessary. We don't need to become an army of believers of campus. It's not necessary. Why? Because in the New Jerusalem, it says that God will come down and dwell in us. And so we have a communion of the Spirit together, which if I see you when I'm in City Creek Mall shopping, I have communion with you by the Spirit the moment we talk. And, and I have communion with you if I see you at a public event that's non-Christian or at a Christian event. We don't need the unifying factor of external material things to keep us together. That's why we don't care about dress codes. That's why we don't care about what people eat, what people drink. That's not a focus anymore. But it was certainly a focus to the church the bride, the church at the gates of hell would not prevail against amidst a culture of idolatry. Now you could say, well, we're surrounded by idolatry today. Pastors will say, we need to do something to protect ourselves against this world. But in the economy of where God lives in us now, we are his temple. We walk about with him in us. Our communion is spiritual. And so we don't need to focus on external unifying factors to make us a group. It's men and women who do those things as a means so that they can have a group. But you don't need it. You can walk out of this building, go down to the park and run into somebody from Calvary Chapel or somebody from the Fifth Baptist or from Draper or from wherever. And if all of you have God in you, you have the communion there. And I'm going to explain why in just a second. But in this day, Jesus said, Whenever you go about my small church in Judea and extended into Asia Minor and you run into each other, eat together. And this is what I want you to eat together in my name, my blood and my broken body. And you'll remember me and you'll unify under that instead of eating meats to idols or what the Romans ate or anybody else. Paul and the believers at Corinth were not in the new age. Paul says later in a place, this new age can't come. He says it cannot come until everything of the former age is done. That includes that big stone temple over there. Until that thing's leveled, we're not going to enter into the new age, right? So he is talking to believers where the new age hasn't come, and so he does what he's supposed to do, what Jesus taught them to do. Come together in my name whenever you do it. Not once a week. He, Jesus said whenever you come together. Do this in my name. This cup of blessing, which we bless, Paul says, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? In the description of the new heaven and the new earth, that's when God says in Revelation 21 that God, it says, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That is what is promised in the new age. And so this external communion, why would it, it's like, why do we need prophets when we have the spirit in us? Why do we need communions when we have the spirit in us permanently because we are part of his in this new Jerusalem? Now, Having said that, I don't see there's anything wrong with communion. We do it here. People want to do it. We do it. It's a wonderful human earthly thing, to tell you the truth. And there is something to it. But it is not necessary any longer because of these different uh, chronological things. So, today we are in a communion unity with each other. By our faith in God, which produces... God in us that we walk with and wherein he dwells with his people, the external stuff not necessary. The, the word for communion, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ is translated to uh, communion there, fellowship in other places, joint, partic- joint participation in other places. And the Greek word, I know you know this if you've been with us for any amount of time, is koinonia. Koinonia. They took the Greek word, koinonia, and they called it communion. And it literally means intercourse. The communion, the co-union, the joint unity of two factors together coming into play. And so believers of that day, Paul, Paul was telling them the rationale, why do you go to the pagan temples... Do you want to have intercourse? But for them, it was literal too. Uh, with pagans, you want to share in a meal, koinonia, and have communion with pagans. And don't you know that the cup of the blessing which you breath, it is, uh, it is, is it not the intercourse with the blood of Christ? It's representative of that. And uh, and that the blood and the bread which we break, is it not the intercourse of the body of Christ? In the new age, the intercourse as God comes, moves in to us. But in this age, before that the new age can come, the intercourse happened in and through this communion process. And that is why perhaps our Catholic friends today give so much power to what they call the Eucharist where they actually say it's a a form of transubstantiation. I don't think they're wrong in their assessment of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in what Paul is saying. Because Paul is clearly telling them then, partake of these elements so that you can have him in you unitedly and, and have this spiritual intercourse together based off the blood and bread that is eaten on Christ's behalf. Of course, that church in that age being the bride that the gates of hell would not prevail against is a thing of the past. So where the Catholics may have these interpretation of these things right, the continuation of this is improper. And to say, because now we're in this age, God is, is with us, right? So the cup which we bless, perhaps there was apostolic miracles in that day where transubstantiation was actually occurring. Because they use these passages, and these are not like lightweight scholars. These are men and women who have studied this stuff forever. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And they say, this is what it's telling us, that we have co-unity with Christ through the actual bread and blood. It's possible, I don't necessarily believe it, But it's possible that was the case in that day. You know, whatever it was, the whole deal is now consummated. And the modern Catholic view, I think, is absolutely inappropriate in its application. But Paul says at 17, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And this passage bugs me to no end because I wish Paul would have just said, For we being one body, we are all partakers of that one bread but he doesn't do that. He says, we are that one bread and we partake of that one bread. And I just, the language is hard to get through. Uh, For we believers, then there, he says, being many are one bread and one body. And then for we are all partakers of that, meaning Christ, one bread. And in my natural mind, there's too many breads going on here. It, 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 it mixes it up so much that it's too much too much bread analogy but perhaps he's just saying look at we're like a loaf of bread we're all different grains ground down molded into one bread and that is who we are we're one body we're one bread and that we are partakers of that one bread and and maybe he is smarter And knows something on what he's saying. I can't really figure out why he uses bread twice other than to say that. At verse 18 through 22, he goes into some language that I'm going to explain or try to explain. And it's not fun in the King James, but let's get through it. At verse 18, he says, Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, when you just read that, we read it together, you can understand a lot of it, but when we take it as a whole, there's some things that are troubling. There are times when I read Paul that his words are are heavy. Peter said that. They're hard to understand. Um, I get some of what he's saying here, so let's appeal to it through the RSV version, which is the revised version, which comes from a different set of proof text uh, manuscripts. It says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices partners in the altar. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Question mark. No. I imply that what pagans sacrificed they offered to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I got to appeal to one more translation as we just go through it. This is the 20th century. I don't like it necessarily because it's super liberal in its use of English terms. But it does explain things sometimes a little better. It says, look at the people of Israel. In other words, let's look back at our forefathers, the Jews, as a type. Do not those who eat the sacrifices, that would be the priests, the Levites, in the temple. That's what they're talking about. Do not those who eat the sacrifices share with the altar. In other words, can we admit right now that those who were making animal sacrifices in the temple of old Jerusalem of old Israel, are eating part of the sacrifices that were offered. Yes, they were. God said, Levites, you are going to get your sustenance from the things that were offered on the altar. Okay, verse 10. Uh, No, verse 19. What do I mean, you ask, Paul says? What's the point I'm trying to make? That an offering made to an idol or the idol itself is anything? Question mark. That is not the point he's trying to make. The rhetorical question in Paul's response, what's my point? My point is to prove that the offering itself, the animal, the meat, the the eating of the thing is nothing. It doesn't mean anything at all, doesn't matter. Instead, his point is to whom was the meat being offered? That's the difference in the offerings, he says. To whom the sacrifice is being offered that matters. So Paul is addressing this because there has been a debate on whether it was okay to eat meat offered to idols. The issue is not in the eating. The issue is in the offering. Who was it offered to? And do you see that offering as something in your life? He seems to be implying. So again in verse 19, he says, What do I mean, you ask? That an offering is made to an idol, or an idol itself is anything? Then he answers, he says, No. Verse 20. It's not anything. Then he continues. What I say is that sacrifices offered by the Gentiles, listen to this, are offered to demons and to a being who is no God. And I don't want you to share, have koinonia with demons. I don't want you to have interaction with them. As I said back in chapter 8, he talked all about whether you can eat meat or not offered to idols. He said, sure you can. Don't stumble another person. And now he's adding, sure you can, but man, make sure you're not tying it in to the demons that it's offered to. In fact, if that has any sort of temptation to you, don't do it. I don't want you to have koinonia with meat that's offered to demons. He drives the point home in verse 21 saying, you cannot drink, and here it is to Christians, both the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and at the table of demons. He makes two emphatic statements there. Back to verse 20, after being asked if he was saying there's anything wrong with the meat offered to God or idols, he says, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the sacrifices offered by the Gentiles are offered to demons and to a being who is not God, and I don't want you to share, I don't want you to have that with demons. Now, this is how scholars put it and I have to think about these things when I read them they say the ellipsis of a negative after an interrogative sentence is common in the classical writers so what they are saying is the sense is no I'm not saying that the meat matters what I'm saying is there are lines to draw in your life relative to what or whom you allow offerings to be made to adding what I am saying is that the sacrifices offered by Gentiles are offered to demons and you are a being who is no God. I don't want you to share with that because you have the true and living God who is not a demon. Now, this is important because as Christians, we read that and we think something automatically. But let's put it in context. Back in the day, pagans, heathens used the word demon, damion, to mean something good or bad. That meant something good or bad. We think that Paul is saying that what they're offering to is, (laughs) right? And that is the way we understand it. And so what we say is we take it zealously and we apply it to everybody. That's being applied to a demon. That's not the true and living God. They're doing it to demons. And we think of demons, ah, right? And in this case, it was a uh, demon. And I'll explain why. But it wasn't always. In that day in the temples, they called everything a demon, a Damian. And they were good and bad. They applied it commonly to spirits that were inferior to a supreme God. And they were known as genies. It's spelled a little bit differently, but they were genies. And attending spirits, they called them divinities, sub-demigods, right? And they were good and or they were good or evil. Socrates himself, this will freak people out, believed that a demon or genie attended him and suggested good thoughts to him and was his protector. This is part of the pagan world. So you can have a good, we call them angels, they called them demons. Now listen, because some beings were seen as good in that world, they did not offer up sacrifices to the good ones. Never. You don't, you, we think that they're offering up sacrifices to the good ones. They offered sacrifices up to the ones that scared them. They were offering up things so that those bad guys or kind of you can't really know what they're going to do gods, They offered those offerings up to protect themselves. But to a demon they thought was good, they didn't offer sacrifice. So understand the historical context of what he's talking about. It was them that the pagans were offering these blood sacrifices. So these really were, in the pagans' minds, the ah. Got it? So that's why we know that when Paul says that they offer them to demons, in the general sense, it's some spirit being, that it also implies that this was a demon that would hurt them, harm them, if they didn't give that demon sacrifices. That's a long way to go about it, to explain it, but if we don't, we'll jump to conclusions that will cause us to make arguments that are non—they're uh, not, not applicable in the argument. So, another point often overlooked by the modern Christian reader is that Many of these spirits were believed to be the souls of departed men who were entitled to worship after death. And they were enrolled among the gods. They called them demons as well. However, the word demons, you know, among the Jews, does not ever have a good positive meaning. Among Jews, the word demon, and so Paul is a Jew, so we come to this conflict when it comes to interpreting this passage. What's he actually saying? I believe that Paul is speaking to what they were actually offering to. Someone they called the a demon, who is not God, and in this case was someone who would harm them if they didn't offer this up to them. That's why Paul borrows a line from Deuteronomy 32:17. 17. That's from the Jewish Old Testament, and it says, They sacrifice unto devils, not to God. I know that's a long, circuitous discussion of information, but it might help you in your foundation of certain thoughts. So, this doesn't mean to show that their actions were not approved of God. This was not God. I would just caution a zealous, literal view of this passage today in assigning it to others. I, I just caution you about that so that we don't take a passage and use it as a sword to stab somebody who is doing something we don't understand. For instance, When a Buddhist goes and offers up something, we see it on National Geographic, that as Christians we don't say, they're offering it to demons. And no, that's not the true and living God. I just think that that we're missing some of the mark there when we do that. That's the only thing I'm trying to suggest. At verse 21, he brings it home. You cannot, this is the important part for a Christian, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the lord's table and the table of devils. How can you do that? How can you have intercourse with devils and God? That's not possible. God's not going to be there, and the demon won't be there. One of the way, it's not going to work out. So you can't do it. Now it doesn 't mean you can't physically try, of course. they could physically try it. I think that's the problem. They were trying to do that. But you can't in the sense that you're not going to be able to have true intimate relationship where you are engaging like a warp and weft threads into a fabric with God if you are having engagement with warp and weft threads to the fabric of devils. You can't do it. Now Jesus taught this in Matthew 6:24. You cannot serve two masters, for either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or else you'll hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He was talking about money there, as money being the God. James says, "Whosoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy to God. You can't straddle, have one foot in, the, in the, uh, you know, the Sea of Galilee and one foot in the River Styx. It doesn't work. You can't straddle that in this world. You are going to look to God, and he's going to be your God, and you have communion and fellowship with God who is in you, Or you're going to start introducing these other gods, and there's going to be a problem in that interaction. Paul ends our time together, and he says, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That goes back to the children of Israel, tempting God. Are we stronger than he? I'm going to cover that next week. That is, by joining in the worship of idols, don't you see how we're provoking God to jealousy? Did you know that God is a jealous God? That is a quote from Scripture. He's a jeal- we think jealousy is bad. It can be bad, but it's not necessarily bad. For instance, a spouse ought to be jealous of their spouse with other people. That's something that should be. We Today, we say, oh, it's terrible. He or she's jealous. They should be jealous because what we're saying is we love our spouse so much, we don't want someone infringing upon that relationship. God is the same way. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want demons, lower spirits, to come in and engage, have koinonia with his children. So he's a jealous God, and he doesn't like that. He doesn't share his relationships or his glory. And it's not because his ego needs it. It's because he knows what's best for his children. Don't engage with those things of the dark side. We'll end here. Question, comments, and remember next week, heart in the parking lot, 12 noon to 2, 2 2.30. Everybody is welcome. We're not having a meat service. We're going to have hot dogs and baptize and fellowship with people here. It's free. Everyone is welcome. All right. Questions, comments. I can't believe this. It's unbelievable. We have a guy named Patrick who's going to say something. Thank you, brother. Hi Sean Hi Patrick
2: um, So you talk about communion Back in that time <laughs> I can't stop laughing I don't know why Anyways it's just one of those days But um, you talk about communion at that time Do you think that um, When they partook of the communion Since God lives in us do you, Are you saying that uh, Communion was a way that They had God living in them
0: I think there could be something to that because of texts like this.
2: Don't, do you think that, um, and this is what I, what I understand, do you think that God' spirit still lived in them like he does yeah, to us today?
0: I do, but I think it was like a gift. Oh, I see. I think it was like a material unifying gift where they actually shared in something as humans that was a miracle of that day and age. It's similar to, funny I'm holding this. when. The handkerchief uh, was given to people to be healed in that day. Uh People are still trying to do that today. We don't need that if God is in us, right? But if if it's a gift that God gives that church that's under super extreme uh, trouble and pressures, that I think the communion had that thing the Catholics say it has today. uh, Missing the 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 fact that... The literal
2: blood and body back then? I
0: don't know if it was literal transubstantiation, but I think there was something miraculous to it. And I still think there's something miraculous to when we share food together, and I think there's something beautiful when we do communion here, I love
2: communion. but I think it's a
0: material worldly thing that we enjoy, and I think they had a special something from that,
2: but we can still do it today, sure, I have another question, I que- don't see
0: it causing any harm,
2: I have another question, yeah, for you since we're on the topic um, this is from 1st John, yeah okay, chapter 3, mm-hmm. verses 4 through 6 this is New King, New King James whoever commits sin, yeah. which I do all the time uh, also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. So whoever abides in Christ does not sin. Yeah. Uh, whoops, it shut off. Hold on. Whoever abides in Christ does not sin. Whoever sins hath neither seen Him nor known Him. So can you explain that because my oh, question man. is i know that's a hard but and i don't mean to throw that on the spot but my question is is i sin all the time and it says that if we're in christ we don't sin and if we do sin we don't even know him yeah. but i do know christ i love him but i still have the nature
0: the hub and spoke patrick and it's it's really big we've ta- i've taught on first uh, john three uh verse by verse and meet but the hub and spoke is multifaceted to get all the points of it first of all how do you sin if the sin has been taken care of according to Scripture, according to the New Testament? Failing in faith and failing to love, okay? Second of all, it says those in Christ cannot sin. So when you say, I sin all the time, what is sinning, in, what is sinning about Patrick? What's, who's doing the sinning? Is it what's in Christ that's doing the sinning? My flesh. That's right. Is it possible for what is in Christ in you to do the sinning? Can when Jesus is with you actually, can the Jesus part that's with you actually sin? That's impossible. Mm -hmm. Jesus part with you cannot sin. Jesus doesn't sin. So you have to take these parts that fit into that hub, those spokes, and take it all together to get a a, a sound understanding of it. Read out loud like that is is tough because you're like, what? That is a tough scripture, I'm sorry. No, 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 I I love it. Because you're thinking and you're searching. But just remember, What's your identity? Jesus. That's right. You, uh, uh, my daughter sent a, th- a text to our family yesterday about how Jesus is uh, in us, lives in us. When he is acting, you cannot sin. It's impossible to sin. But when you say, Jesus, I don't want you acting so much anymore, <laughs> sin boy comes out waving to everybody. Got it?
2: Yeah. Can I ask one last thing? Yeah. And then I'll let somebody else take it. Um, in the end of chapter seven of Matthew, it says that not everyone that says Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They that do the will of my Father, you know, you cast out demons and do all these wonderful yeah. things, uh, because uh, they don't practice. They have they they have lawlessness in the New King James at the end. What do you think that means compared to what we uh,
0: how okay, it means? so say the passage again with lawlessness in the place. Just read this. You just said it. You know what? Just kind of paraphrase
2: it. Yeah, it says that uh, not. Not and everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Yeah, yeah, And then it says, um...
0: But they who do the will of my but Father.
2: But uh, those, those who... Uh, I never knew you because you don't practice... You practice lawlessness. Okay, right.
0: Okay, compared so, to
2: How does it apply to us?
0: The Jews came to Jesus in a, three chapters later. And they said, what do, how do we do the will of the Father? He said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord's mine, but those who do the will of the Father. And so they came to him later and said, how do we do the will of the Father? And his answer is an answer that says this would be practicing no lawlessness. You know what he says to them? Believe on the Son who he has sent. Because when they believed on him, they would be practicing the will of the Father because through Christ, they are not practicing lawlessness. But without Christ, everything they do is lawless. You see? Because it's not God's law guiding them. Does that help? Awesome, brother. Anything else? Good questions, Patrick all the way over
3: hi Sean Uh, I'm Dan Uh, something Patrick said in his first question sparked uh, a thought Um, I'm a former Catholic and my brother and I just had a pretty deep conversation this week I saw him when I was on a trip and uh he's still a very staunch catholic but i'm I'm wondering if there's a tie in between um the idea that or the fact that during that time the Satan was very energetically um, fighting the body of christ i mean and and then um and so maybe they needed something like communion as a special as a, a gift or a, a strengthening mechanism or a unifying mechanism but what I'm hearing you say and I'm, I'm actually starting to believe some of it uh, <laughs> that if Jesus returned yeah. and the devil has uh, Satan has been has been vanquished right. uh, put in a lake of fire or wherever he went mm-hmm. it's that uh, maybe that particularly t- uh, bad time has uh, uh, we don't need that now right. that particular That's right. time is that possible? I think huh. it's entirely possible and that is exactly what I'm trying to
0: get across you, Okay. because historical records and also Revelation says he was going to come down because he knew his time was short and he was going to rain hell down on the church and the people and he did I mean, when you read the accounts of what happened to Christians under Nero's hand, you're talking about stuff North, Christians in North Korea have, are, have not touched since And so I think God gave that, that church spiritual gifts, I think in terms of tongues, I think in terms of uh, empowerment from on high, apostles doing miracles and wonders, the communion having super ability to unify. And I think that out, it was out of his mercy because, I mean, they were being put to death for their faith. Radical. Very good point, Dan. Anybody else? Front row. A girl that made me a daddy. At least I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <But> I'm Mallory.
4: <laughs> so when you're reading from, from Corinthians and you say Paul's addressing mainly the worship of idols, like when I read it in that context, it's like... I think of gold statues and like literal replacements of like, Oh, yeah. for God. But in this day and age, it's anything that replaces Jesus, right? Whether sure. it's uh, organic food or yoga or marijuana or. <laughs> yep, Anything That's that replaces that, that people swear is the saving grace to this life uh, right. over God. Right. That's
0: right. When we take, And that's our challenge is that when times get hard, I mean, you know, if it really get down, I wanna chug some tequila, right? Mm -hmm. Because that becomes my little tin god. Mm -hmm. That's gonna give me Mm -hmm. the peace and solace. Mm -hmm. All those things are constantly asking us to go to it Mm -hmm. instead of him, so you're right. Anything in this day and age, now I would not say that you can't do yoga, or you can't smoke ganja or have tequila, but if that becomes your solace, For your peace to operate, you're in trouble. And it's
4: promoted heavily by some in this world as the answer. Absolutely. It is. And then No, yeah. I believe you can partake and, and not make it your idol, but for those that do. Good luck. And it's really hard, the straddling. That's right. It's, yeah, I can't. So forget So you got to
0: be careful of the straddle. Yeah. I single to the glory of God is a much better route. Good point, Mal.
2: Second round, I'll be quick. Off of what she said, and I'm probably sure you're going to touch it next week or... I mean, not next week, but you know, whenever you get back to this. Paul says in verse 23, All things are lawful uh, to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. That's right. So not all things edify, and Christ is the one that edifies. Christ is the one that we can find our peace in, because th- that marijuana, as much as I like it, I keep going back to it, right. trying to find that satisfaction. Right. But Christ... Satisfies me once and for all, for the rest of my life, and I'm so thankful for that.
0: Amen, brother. Hallelujah. Do yourself a favor and read the word in the Greek of edify, because it really does have some meaning to. Wow, all things might be lawful, but what really edifies? Good, Patrick. Delaney McCraney.
5: I don't, I don't know if anyone else struggles with this concept, but I do because we have, we have to eat every day. We have to drink. We have to like drive cars and do work, things that can instantaneously become idolatrous or whatever. So I feel like because of that, it has to be that it's, it comes down to your heart and your perspective on it. Right. Your your heart. Yes. For it. Yes. So if you are drinking tequila or whatever, it's right. It, is solely based on your intentions with it and your heart
1: right yes
0: it's the heart what's your heart behind it and you're right i think it's amazing that we live in a world that that's what that we have to eat and for people who love food like me you have to constantly say am i going to get my solace from the food or from god and that we have to drive cars and be in traffic am i going to trust god with this idiot who's in front of me or am i going to take it in my own hands it's i said this online this morning believe that or not That said, I think every human interaction we have is an opportunity to love or not. Every single one. And to show that we love God and others or not. Every one that we have. And I think that's why we're in this world. That we are working through these trials to show and learn that we do love Him and place Him on the altar and nothing else. And it's tough when you do have to partake in some things.
5: Or in the world than before. You have to engage in the interactions and
0: and you have
5: to put yourself into the world more the more you believe in him. Like
0: Jesus had to come into the world. The faith is not about monastic living. We don't go up into the hills and practice our faith and consider ourselves holy. We go into the ghettos and deal with the people who are yelling at us and offering us drugs and food and we learn to love in those ways. That's why you are engaging in the things that you engage in. Don't be hopeless. He's working in and through you. And Gaylene, who's the, who's going to be baptized this Sunday? Next I want to
4: say that I don't know how to put it across, but I've had a bad habit for many years. Some people know what it is and others don't. But I'm going to get re-baptized next week under Sean. and Renew my born-again Christianity I want people to know that and I am looking at it this way I sure I have a pet but I'm not looking at her like an idol I'm looking at her as my friend <laughs> and the Lord the Lord knows I come to church I make an effort to read the Bible and That, so I don't look at her as an idol maybe in ways she's just an idol but I still put the Lord Father God and the Lord first
0: of course you do Thank you, Gayleen. Sure. Your dog's not your idol. You're, you're doing great. All right. Is that it? All right. Front row, Michelle. And we'll wrap it up.
2: It's Michelle. Um, I'm going to just add to what Gaylene just said. Her dogs, her pets, or any of us that have pets, even if it's a fish um, or a snake—not my favorite—are um, it's an opportunity to love. It's an yeah. opportunity for some of us to practice loving someone, something else, when we may not be as adept at loving humans, because humans are inherently not
1: so
0: cool, yeah.
1: not so easy to love.
0: It is. And I love that. Thank you. So those pets are a gift from God. Another gift, Gaylene. All right. My friend Steve Rudd and I, growing up, we watched a, cu- a couple yell at their gardener. And he was a little Asian gardener. Yell at him. He took it and he took it and took it. And then we watched him go to the side yard and kick their dog and yell at the dog. So I think your point is well taken. We choose to love. Everything in life is a choice to love or not. We tell that story when we get together. All right, let's pray. Lord, so grateful you're opening our eyes to the things you want us to know and the comments and the insights people share and we pray that we will see this life not as the burden but as opportunity to overcome ourselves and to love others when it is so tough and not to have idols that take place of you yes you give us gifts and as christians we have a more abundant life in you that everything like paul says all things are lawful but they're not all expedient. They don't all edify. So help us to have the wisdom to understand the difference and to uh, not become people who are trying to establish our own righteousness, but that we are people who are trying to constantly establish the fact that you are primary, you are first in our lives. We pray for those who are on this list. Annette, in her last days, peace and comfort. Jesus can pro- The only that Jesus can provide. Heal the hurts her family are uh, causing each other, bring peace and comfort. She's passing away from cancer. We pray for Robert, healing from cancers, lidney, uh, kidney, lidney. lung and lymphoma. Diana, her hips and shoulders and knees. Heal them, help her to have peace and strength. Our sister, we love her, Liz. Uh, continued healing from knee surgery. Diane, kidney stones and other issues. Gracie, awaiting scans. We pray that those will come out clear. Finish chemo, and we're hoping and praying for healing and peace of her body completely. Brandy, faith in the Lord's mercy and grace upon her life. And Lord, I lift up my, our sister, uh, Barbara. Uh, last week, her husband, Scotty, much younger than her, passed away from a sudden stroke. And uh, he would come and Barbara would be with us at meat, and uh, just suddenly uh, passed. And uh, it's so fleeting, Lord. It is vapor on a glass, this life. Help us to have the eternal view. As we exit here, to live the abundant life, to enjoy the challenges you give us, because we know that through them we are learning patience and are able to express the fruit of the Spirit as Christians, which is love. Help us to be more loving to all creatures, but especially to these humans who are so difficult to love at times. We pray for this strength. We pray that we will be better Christians. We pray that we will be true and genuine in our walk, and not phonies and not religionists, but true in our devotion to you, the only true and living God and your Son, whom you sent. In Jesus' name, amen.